Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett running the Truth Jihad from the Stut Dio, high up on the Stut, which is the rooftop here in Saidia, Morocco, where I'm looking out on the Maghrib, which is the sunset, which is also the name of Morocco in Arabic, Al-Maghrib. Things look a little different here from how they may look back in occupied America. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's all relative, um, except for whatever reality with a capital R actually is, and only Allah knows that. So, meanwhile, we're going to be comparing different points of view from earthbound human beings tonight, as we always do here on Truth Jihad Radio. Uh, some widely varying perspectives. In the second hour, we're going to hear from Michael Hoffman. He's a former AP reporter who has become an author and historian. He argues that the missing link to comp- comprehending Israeli mass murder and racism is the Talmud? Really, Michael? His article making that argument actually didn't present the details, so I'm looking forward to hearing what those details are in the first half of the second hour. Then, in the second half of the second hour, former federal special agent Carl Golovin comes on to discuss censorship within the JFK assassination research community. He just had a back and forth with Jefferson Morley, who's the biographer of James Jesus Angleton, the former CIA counterintelligence chief who is on everybody's list of suspects, indeed at the top of the list of suspects in the JFK assassination coup d'etat, and Jefferson Morley, despite knowing full well that James Jesus Angleton was basically a Mossad sleeper agent who very likely organized the JFK coup on behalf of the state of Israel in general, and Ben-Gurion, who had resigned in order to supervise the preparations for the JFK assassination coup in particular, uh, that's totally taboo. You're not allowed to say that in JFK research circles. But Carl tries to say it anyway and gets slapped down for his pains. All right, so that's the second hour. First hour, Nikki Reed is an anarchist who works with my old friend and radio guest. He's been on uh, several times, Keith Preston of Attack the System. And Nikki has a couple of great new articles out making points that really obviously needed to be made Points like the so-called defenders of free speech, the anti-woke people who were defending free speech during the COVID era are now basically calling for all anti-genocide speech to be muzzled and silenced. What's what's up with that? And then Nikki also has a new article, uh, The Jews Must Join the Intifada Against the State of Israel. And uh, all I could say is, uh, for a headline like that, is, is Allahu Akbar. All right, so let's let's uh, bring her on. Welcome, Nikki. How are you doing? Hey. So welcome, and so we're, boy, I'm not quite sure where to start here, but maybe with the Intifada against the State of Israel, because I think that's a great concept. Um, I don't fully share the perspective of every aspect of your article, but a lot of it, and I've always, I've been asking for years and decades, actually, like, where are the Jews in the Palestinian resistance? Like in South Africa, there were a lot of white Afrikaners, um, they're, you know, famous poets and literary people and stuff who actually joined the armed resistance against apartheid. But 
in occupied Palestine, a vastly more oppressive situation, an ongoing genocide, basically, vastly worse than South Africa ever was, very, very few Jews have actually gone all the way and joined the Palestinian resistance. So maybe we start out like asking, why do you think that is? Well, I, I think there's been a consistent presence of Israeli Jews among among the peace movement. Um, as far as the radical movement goes against Zionism, um, you kind of have a lot of different people taken from a lot of different parts of the world and kind of positioned against each other. And one of the major stories that I try to talk about in the latest article um, is the story of the Mizrahim, of, of the, the Jews from across the Middle East. And a lot of these people were kind of, they were brought over under very under false pretenses. A lot of them were, were actually kind of stampeded over there. Uh, in Iraq, there were, there, there were cases of Mossad committing false flag attacks against them to basically kind of storm them in, into the state of Israel to kind of give the Ajakanazi elites the numbers they needed. Um, so you yeah, here, here in Morocco, you too, have, actually. Yes, yes. And the, the, the Moroccan Jews have been traditionally some of the most uh, discriminated against in Israel. Um, and there was, you know, very briefly, there was a very radical movement uh, known as the Israeli Black Panthers um, that was made up largely of Arab Jews. And they actually went to war in the streets against the police with Molotov cocktails. Um, but they managed to kind of make a deal um, with the with these people to essentially the Likud, the the right wing Israeli, uh, they they essentially made them a deal that we can give you your own land as long as you're willing to steal it from somebody else. Um, so they they've kind of taken the anger and the rage that that these people had towards the Jewish government, because the Jewish government had, had herded them into camps, they had tested DDT on them, um, and, and they radiation. They direct, yes, yeah, they, they they took their kids from, from hospitals and gave them to Ajakanazi parents, and I, I, everything you can think of, really. Uh, they, they treated them... And you know there are there are quotes Ben Gurion referring to them as savages, you know. So they basically they took these people's rage and they directed it at somebody else. They and now the same people who were fighting the Ajakanazi elites in the streets back in the 1970s are unfortunately being unleashed on the people in the West Bank, and they're the people that are leading the pogroms, you know, against the Bedouins that are burning down villages. And it's basically, it's a case 
of taking people's rage and directing it somewhere else. And the Ajikanazi, they learned that from the best. They learned that from the United States government, because that's precisely what we did to the Jews after, after the Holocaust. Is we took a people who were horrifically traumatized, who were, you know, battered by basically every state in Europe, and then we directed the rage against a group of people that had nothing to do with it, people that, that they probably have more in common with than they, than they do with, with most of Europe. So it's, it's, it's kind of... Well, well it's, let, let me question that. I, like, it seems to me that the, the Ashkenazi Jews are very much European. You know, and certainly they're not Semitic. This notion that yeah. European Jews are Semitic is, is a 19th century racist misnomer based on the language. Uh, you know, back in, in the early 18th or 19th century, the philologists thought that the language that was spoken related to the, the race, the biological, you know, what we call DNA today. Yeah. Right. So they erroneously said Jews are Semitic. Well, they're not. The, the European Jews uh, are just Eastern Europeans like other Eastern Europeans. You know, somewhat yeah, somewhat. Yeah, the Ashkenazi. You know, yeah, it, it's a lot of the evidence does seem to indicate that the Ashkenazi were were people who had uh, who had um, converted, um, and and Judaism used to be very very big on on conversion, and there used to be that used to be a major part of of Jewish theology, which has kind of been distorted and and kind of removed now that. The kind of idea of the Jews even being a singular race is a relatively new concept, um, and it's a concept that really is not particularly. It's 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 kind of alien to the actual theology itself. It, it, it was created by the early Zionist movement, which were kind of this this strange offshoot of the same kind of European nationalism that the Nazis came out of. Um, but a lot of these people, the, the converts, still, they converted to what was more or less a Semitic culture. Um, and that's kind of been distorted and destroyed. Excuse me, by, by Semitic um, culture, so I, you, you mean because of the Hebrew language, which is the sacred scriptural language, in the Jewish religion is a Semitic language. So you're saying that when the Eastern Europeans, uh, they uh, converted to that religion, they then became Semitic. And I, I would question that because you know, I, I'm, I came to I, Islam I would... in, in the mid nineties and I've tried to learn Arabic and I've got, you know, made some progress, but I don't know if that's turned me Semitic. I, I no, I would, I would say Judaism and the culture surrounding Judaism still has Semitic roots to it, that it's still, very much a Semitic culture. It's, no, it's even, been even American Jews. Yes, uh, to some extent, um, the the Jews. I would say that, that before the people who have Jewish heritage that goes before Zionism. Zionism kind of really, really kind of tore things up. Um, but I would say that that there is a cultural link. Um, and you know the the basic the Jewish culture before Zionism was largely one that was driven more towards 
anti-authoritarianism. It was, it was driven more towards a rejection of the state in general, and that's why you see so many Jews before World War II involved in a wide variety of, of dissident groups throughout Europe, throughout the United States, you know, communists, anarchists. Um, they often they often formed a very large section of the opposition to a wide variety of of, of despotic state operations, um, and that kind of that's kind of been twisted up. And uh, there are still some people that still follow that. And I mean, you, that's why you see a lot of the the biggest a lot of the the biggest. Uh, Names and anti-Zionism in, in the United States are still are still Jews. Um, you know, people like Norman Finkelstein and, and Noam Chomsky, and you know, for however many flaws they may have, there still is a a tradition within Jewish culture, even Jewish secular culture, that is opposed to authoritarianism. Yeah, Max Blumenthal um, is yeah. doing some really good work uh, these days too. Yes. Yeah, and and I I think that that I think that does come from a cultural place. It's not really I, I don't really put a lot of stock into genetics. I see race as being more of a cultural construct, um, and I I do think that at, at one time Judaism was more of an ideology than a race, um, and it it. it, it Came kind of racialized under Zionism, um, but well, there do, are. Do you think, still... you think that's because of the nature of the ideology? Because there's, you know, it, we all know about the Old Testament's begets and begots. Obviously, that ideology yeah. is very, very tribal. It's all, it's all based on this sort of, you know, patriarchal descent system. Of base, you know, that Israel is the name that you know, Jacob got after he fought or wrestled against God, or maybe against God's angel. Who knows? So the word Israel has come to mean. The Jewish nation, and even before the modern nation state of Israel existed, there was this presumed Jewish nation called Israel, meaning the sons of Israel, meaning the sons of Jacob. And just as tribes like here in Morocco are named, you know, there's the uh, you know the Beni this and Beni that names of place names based on these tribes. The most basic human way of organizing a group is by calling yourself the sons of so and so, and then you think of yourself as a tribe or a nation, and that's that's what. Judaism really is the ideology is that it is a biological tribe descended from Israel, supposedly. Yes, but a lot of a lot of the Jews before Zionism, they they saw the nation of Israel as not being a nation state. That that that's still a very Western concept. They saw it as being something more spiritual, as something that would possibly happen in the future you know under very spiritual context uh but a lot of a lot of these and i mean you can see it with with some of the ultra orthodox jews who are very anti-zionist um that the idea of existing in a jewish state in which you have to force people off the land is is completely anathema but but at the same time, religions are complicated, and the Abrahamic religions in particular are, are are full of contradictions. And there are you know you you'll find with most of the most religions you will find 
you'll find segments that have always been authoritarian, and you will find segments that have always been anti-authoritarian, and, and uh, that kind of speaks to the complexity of humanity in general. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. With, within the Jewish tradition, it, it seems to me there's a kind of an interesting paradox that the authoritarian side of it is pretty obvious and pronounced, especially you know the, the whole uh, Old Testament mentality of the Old Testament writers and their you know the mouthpieces, basically berating the Jewish people that you know you guys have gone out and uh, sinned by consorting with the people of this or that other tribe, and what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go smash those people's idols. And then you're supposed to steal their stuff and give it to Yahweh, meaning the high priests of Yahweh. So the, the people yeah. behind the ideology are basically the high priests of Yahweh. They see Yahweh as basically one God among many, a henotheistic God originally. And then it's kind of gradually started turning into actual monotheism. And it's very, very authoritarian. And, very, and they basically terrorize their people into obedience. And I would argue that we still see that uh, in today's Jewish culture, where the Jewish culture has been terrorized into obedience to the high priests of, of that culture. Those high priests today, I don't think, are really mostly religious. Those high priests are the billionaire classes and the, the political establishment elite of Israel, and then the high-level Sanem, the billionaire American Sanem, who basically rule the United States on behalf of Israel. And those people, these this yeah, cognitive many, elite... Many of them are Christians, though, well, there's, unfortunately. That's yeah. Yeah, that's the Protestants have gone over to take an Old Testament mentality and so on. But, but in in any case, there's that extreme authoritarianism that people like Spinoza rebelled against. Um, but then there is that reaction against it uh, by sort of a cognitive counter elite. And you mentioned some of that before. Uh, people um, like yeah, people like Chomsky, although I, I don't have much use for him, <laughs> and uh, uh, and Blumenthal, who's definitely better, and, and Gilad Atzman, who's even better than that. Lots of really rebellious and original Jewish thinkers. So it is, it's a very interesting situation, but I still would argue that the overall Jewish tribal configuration still exists today, just like it did, even though there's not so, not so much religion involved today, and that it is still basically the tribal power elite, the cognitive power elite, brainwashing and terrorizing the masses of people into believing that they are opposed by these nasty goyim who want to, you know, exterminate them, put them in gas chambers, throw them into the sea, have been persecuting them down through the ages, yada, yada, yada. And frankly, I think the origin of that persecution complex is circumcision. I think that everybody who's been circumcised right after birth carries this horrific PTSD memory of the most sensitive part of their anatomy being brutally excised. Uh, and, you know, the, the pain and anguish of that is, is almost unimaginable. And then that destroys or ra radically damages the mother-child bond because the baby you know, depends on its mother for protection. And giving the baby to this scary stranger who performs unspeakable torture on it uh, d destroys that confidence the baby has in its mother. So this leads to the overcompensation of the Jewish mother syndrome, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then that baby grows up with this repressed buried memory and it is taught by the tribal leaders and the family and so on that there's this scary, scary figure, the Goy, who wants to throw you in gas chambers and wants to drive you into the sea and hates Jews, has been persecuting Jews all throughout history. Therefore, we Jews have to unite and use every trick in the book to push back against these evil Goys, including using all kinds of wildly unethical means. 
For that reason, for 2,500 years, the Jewish tribe has been using psychopathic, unethical means to exploit the Goys, and that is the actual source of the conflict between the Jews and the Goys. It's not the Goys persecuting the Jews, it's the Jews persecuting the Goys based on this complex. So that's my take on it, and of course, naturally, people call it anti-Semitic. has nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with biology. This is, I think, an ideological tribal construct that I'm critiquing. What's your take on that? Um, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of different directions in there. Um, yeah, my, my, my basic take with it is, is that there are authoritarian tangents within every culture. And unfortunately, the authoritarian tangents within Jewish culture are the ones that have won out. And I, I tend to blame that more on, Western colonialism than anything else, because at the end of the day, we're the ones that that, that feed the fire, um, and I think that that we found cer- certain aspects within Judaism that are very helpful to that fire, and we've accentuated those, and we've downplayed the ones that aren't. And we've kind of done the same thing with Christianity. You know, we, we, we've accentuated the parts of Christianity that are very imperialistic uh, in order to kind of manipulate people into supporting imperialism. And I, I kind of just see Israel as being an American beachhead in the Middle East. Um, and it, there's a lot of complex angles as far as spirituality goes and as far as psychology goes, um, but I think that I generally see it as being an imperialist project. Um, and well, I, let, I let me question that, that a little bit. Like, So <clears throat> if, if, if it's true, you know, and I know Chomsky argues this, this is one of the many things I disagree with Chomsky about, but okay, let's say if, if it's true that Israel is an American beachhead in the Middle East, it's clearly beneficial to the American empire. Why is it? that in the Truman administration, when Truman was faced with a choice of whether or not to support the creation of Israel, every single one of his advisors, the entire State Department, everybody at the top of the, every, everybody at the top of the military, every National Security Council or whatever they called it in those days before he drafted the National Security Act, every single advisor begged him on their knees to not allow the creation of Israel, which would be not only uh, the source of immense suffering and tragedy in general, but would be a huge problem for United States, quote-unquote, national interests. So were they all wrong, or maybe has the Jewish Zionist-controlled media created this notion that somehow Israel is good for U.S. empire, when those of us who actually are in the Arab world, know the Arab world, and so on, know that the Arab world and the United States would be working together perfectly well uh, oh, yeah, if yeah. they follow JFK's it was, advice. It was a, it was, <laughs> don't get me wrong, it was a foolish idea. You know, Iraq was a foolish idea. You know, it, 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 it was, it, it's an incredibly stupid thing to do, but when people are seeking more, when people are driven by greed, they don't always do the most rational things. Um, and there have been multiple cases where, you know, this has bitten us on the ass. And I mean, there, and of course, there, there's, there's also the fact that, you know, Israel doesn't exist in a vacuum. They have their own leadership who are greedy and who want to put their own empire first, who want to aspire to be 
there's plenty of people within you know the Israel camp who fucked us over and who've who've you know pulled all kinds of, all kinds of shit you know that you know nu- stealing nuclear secrets and and killing killing the Kennedys wars, blowing up the World Trade Center dragging us in the wars that that really have like nothing to do with us you know so it's 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 definitely it hasn't been it hasn't been a particularly fantastic plan don't get me wrong it hasn't been but, well, the, it's, not, but it's not a plan as I, as I just said that the whole the whole u.s establishment was against the creation of israel and knew it would be a yeah, huge there, pain. There was, yeah there's always been it's an, people israel's an albatross in the establishment of, yeah. there's always been people in the establishment who, who disagreed on how best to to project empire you know to, to this day you'll you'll find people in the establishment who think that the idea of us funding Ukraine is completely insane. It is absolutely stupid, you know. And then you'll you'll find people who who see the absolute insanity in that, but don't seem to seem see that doing the exact same thing in Taiwan is equally stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, powerful people, unfortunately, have not been known to make the most rational decisions in That's the a world. Good point. Uh, so there's been plenty, plenty of wild and idiotic decisions made by people across the board. Don't get me wrong. And, well, let's look at what's happening um, right now. Okay, so so Biden yeah, has yeah. made the United States universally hated in the world by giving all out support to this genocidal massacre of Palestinians yeah, over the past disastrous. two months. So how, how how is this benefiting the U.S. empire? It looks to me like what this is going to do is going to push the entire Arab and Muslim worlds 100% on board with the Russia-China-Iran axis, yes. and it's going to hasten the yeah. demise of the U.S. empire. So why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this because the Jewish Americans around Biden, whose entire administration is Jewish, have this loyalty to their tribe. And you know, likewise, most of the reason we're in Ukraine is probably because those same Jewish Americans around Biden and elsewhere. You know, basically, as I see it, the elite that runs America today is is Jewish, just as it was WASP before World War II. Let's, there's nothing you know racist about saying WASPs ruled America before World War II, and there's nothing racist about admitting the obvious fact that Jews rule America today. And Jews have this race, this tribal animosity against Russian Christianity. They have stories of pogroms and such. And those conflicts that you mentioned earlier, you know, that, that with you can argue about which side was right, but let's face it, there was that conflict between Slavic Christians and Jews. And today it seems to me that the tribal Jews are um, massacring Slavs based on that tribal idea. Now, that's not the only reason. I agree that there are imperial real politic reasons as well. But I think that's the uh, the overriding reason. I don't think there would be any war in Ukraine if it weren't for that factor. And likewise, I think that Israel is a massive albatross around the neck of U.S. empire, dragging it underwater. And the only reason that the U.S. is allowing itself to be dragged underwater is because these tribally uh, psychopathic Jews run the country. Well, I, I see. I see it as, as uh, America essentially being an empire in decline. We are falling apart. Things are are not working. Um, there are people who have devoted themselves to certain projects, like the Israel project, uh, and they've become absolute zealots towards these projects. Uh, and, and some of them are motivated by cultural aspects. 
but a lot of them are, are motivated by greed and by pride. You know, Biden is somebody who has invested his entire life into this this idea that, hey, this is a great idea. We we build up, you know, this this empire in the Middle East of Europeans, then then you know, we, we can do whatever we want. We can launch whatever whatever we want from that platform. It was a stupid idea, but it, but somebody like Biden is never going to admit that. The people in his camp, they can't allow themselves to admit it even to themselves. What has the U.S. ever so launched they, from Israel? Uh, well, I mean, we see Israel as being kind of a base, uh, I would say. But specifically, what have, what, what have we ever done in the Middle East that Israel made it easier to do? It's been really hard to get oil out of the Middle East because everybody in the Middle East hates us because we support the genocide of yeah. Palestine. So how, what it, and we've never, when we, when the U.S. went and, you know, slaughtered people in Iraq and the regime changed here and pushed back against the Iranian revolution there and has done all of this horrendous mischief across the region. Every in every example of that, and I'm not supporting that mischief, by the way. I'm just as anti-U.S. empire as you are. However, I just recognize the reality that the existence of the, this genocidal entity squatting in occupied Palestine has made the U.S. empire's dirty work in the region vastly more difficult, dangerous, and impossible to succeed in than it would have been had there been no such entity there. So therefore, the reason that the U.S. supports Israel cannot possibly be that it's advantageous. Instead, it's that people like Joe Biden are taking money from Jewish billionaires who are tribally brainwashed. I, I would say that the main difference in my viewpoint years is that I would put a little bit more of this on the folly of greedy people than I do on any specific kind of click within within that and there's plenty of there there is plenty of proof to what you're saying too you know i i I don't disagree with that there are there are definitely a lot of very wealthy powerful people who are very much invested in zionism and are pulling strings and and are making the these decisions even harder to make rationally and I don't think that any of this has gone particularly well, but there's a there's a long history of of empires investing in ideas that have not gone very well. Um, but yeah. I, I would probably I would probably chalk it up more to the fact that that when you create a concentration of power and greed, you kind of you kind of exist in a vacuum. You don't really see reality uh, as clearly as as you should. And and I I think that at times we assume that powerful people have all the answers and can see all the perspectives. But a lot of times the most powerful people are the people that are are looking through the most narrow the most narrow point of view. And I mean that's part of the reason why I, I view power as being the problem in and of itself. It, 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 it's disastrous on every single level, um, and it, it creates these situations in which very small groups of people can make really incredibly stupid and evil decisions that can destroy everyone and everything around them. So, um, you know, when you say power is the, the the problem. 
I know that you're 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 an anarchist and have a special uh, kind of uh, you know odium for the state. You got you know, see the state as as a focus of evil. I, I kind of tend to agree. I, I I've gone through. I actually used to think of myself as an anarchist as much as anything else, uh, not all that long ago, and uh, th- that leads us to the question of what's the alternative to the state? Like in the 19th century, the anarchists debated the socialists. Socialists said, "Oh, you know, the working class takes over," and you know, it's a brief period where where the revolutionary elite sort of sets things up and then the state withers away and we live in paradise. And the anarchists said, no, that's not going to happen. You guys are just going to hold on to the power and it's going to be just as bad, if not worse, as it was before. And the anarchists were right. They won the debate, obviously. But the anarchists themselves have various kinds of unclear ideas about what utopian vision comes along when you somehow manage to smash the state. And Well, I, I think... I think utopia is kind of a mistake. Utopia is kind of this idea that there's an end, that we're going to solve things, and, and there's going to be a happy ending, and that's just not realistic. Um, I, I would say that the, the, the worst assumption that you can make, and many anarchists make this assumption, unfortunately, is that there is just one answer. Um, the, the reality is that I think each individual community needs to figure out what an existence without the state looks for them. And that may be radically different from one village to the next. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think the, the best example that I can think of of a successful uh, anarchist community are the Amish that live not too far from me, who essentially just exist without without uh, deference to the state, and they, they're they a very conservative community. At the same time, everything is done voluntarily. Uh, it's, it's a major part of their faith and their culture. Is You know, the Anabaptist movement was built on an opposition to baptizing children because that would take away their voluntary will. So while these are extremely conservative people, their entire culture and their entire way of living is built around voluntary decisions, uh, whether or not you want to be a part of this community. Um, and I think that that each individual community, I think we need to get back to a place where there is more diversity in the ways in which people live. Um, and I think that there's, there's a number of, there's a number of Islamic societies that currently exist um, that have done pretty well, uh, not in the traditional anarchist sense, but have existed without a state, have existed without anybody having a monopoly on the use of force. I mean, if you look at, for example, the Pashtuns uh, on the Afghan-Pakistani border, these people have resisted being ruled for as long as anybody can remember and it's not a perfect situation. They have there's plenty of problems. It's not the kind of place that I would want to live, but at the same time, it's the kind of place where they would want to live. Um, and they have basically managed to do what every other Western anarchist has failed to do for centuries, and that is to resist being ruled. And I think that I think that size is a really big part of it. I think that, that anarchism 
I think that any successful, whatever you want to call it, any successful society needs to be small and needs to be community uh, focused on community. So the idea that there is like one solution, uh, that's a big problem, and it's a big problem that a lot of anarchists have fallen into. Uh, and one of my favorite quotes is by Rudolf Rocker, who's an old anarcho-syndicalist, uh, and he, he said that uh, I'm not an anarchist because I believe it's the final solution. I'm an anarchist because I believe there is no final solution. So it, it's about destroying structures that maintain authority um, and allowing the room for communities to make decisions together, uh, collectively, cooperatively. And that may look like something radically different from one place to the next. Yeah, that's, a, that's and very I think well that, said. I, I think that's, the, that's something that a lot of the anarchists left, unfortunately. There's a lot of people who call themselves anarchists who are really just socialists who like guns. You know, it, 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 so there's a lot of there's a lot of anarchists who they. I think universalism is is a really major problem within the left. This idea that everybody has to do the same thing and live the same way. And I have certain beliefs, you know, based on how people should live. But the idea that I ha- that I can somehow get everybody else to jump on board with those beliefs and have the entire planet operate the same way, it's not only ignorant, it, it, it's kind of inherently imperialistic. To, to assume that you've got everything figured out. You so know, so, mean, so I, why do you think I, that anarchists have gone so wrong? Because, you know, I, I've actually been horrified to see a lot of the stuff being done by so-called anarchists over the past 10 years. Uh, this Rose City Antifa, for example, out in Portland, I remember I, I was going on the radio shows with John Shuck, who had a program on KBU Portland. I used to go on his show. And then the, the Rose City Antifa got start some kind of movement started to get me banned so they threatened to you know get john fired if i went on the radio and then it turns out the more i look at those guys the more they're running around shutting everybody down terrorizing people they're like the worst authoritarians i've ever seen what kind of anarchists are these they've they've done the same thing to me i i i was i was going to be a um i was a part of an organization in which i was basically just listed on the board and mind you, I am an, a very openly transgender person. Um, and they, there were people in a number of groups. One of them was in Oakland, and the other one, I think, was in Baltimore uh, that were very anti-related groups. And all they really knew about me is that I had an affiliation with Attack the System. And Attack the System has, made, has a certain reputation. Uh, that in and of itself was enough for them to demand that I be removed from that board um so yeah i mean it's unfortunate that a lot of these people don't really understand anarchism that's 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 the sad reality a lot of people have kind of adopted anarchism kind of as a fashion statement um and then there's other people who kind of they get the gist of it and that but they fall under the influence of of people who have completely lost their way. And 
so there are people who call themselves anarchists that do not operate as who operate in a very authoritarian manner, and they they think that that as long as they don't do that under a state construct, that that's perfectly fine. Um, I I completely disagree with that. Yeah, it reminds me a little uh, bit it, of, of the, the sort of uh, what the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, used to do. These other, you know, the kind of very organized crime tribal groups, and that leads to the question of, you know, if you get rid of the state, but you, you're still going to have sort of tribal groups, and quite often when states yeah. collapse, you get actually these kinds of, you know, people with guns who give you protection. Uh, basically kind of, you know, play the role that the state would play if it were there. Uh, collapse of the Soviet Union led to these armed groups and, and organized crime groups and so on. Uh, and, and we see that everywhere. And, and Clifford Geertz, the anthropologist, I think he's the one who said that, you know, we all have a choice. We can either be oppressed by the state or we can be oppressed by our cousins. And what he meant by that, of course, is that when there's no state, ultimately people band together on a tribal or extended family basis. And that becomes the yeah, focus of coercion. That's why there's more work to do than simply overthrowing the state. We have to get people to kind of rethink the way they look at society because living under this Westphalian nation state has really kind of polluted people's concept of what society even looks like. People don't really know how to exist without authoritarianism. They are convinced that they need their jail cells. And it's going to take more than simply removing one major oppressor to completely change that because people are still addicted to being oppressed. Um, and that there's no easy solution to that. All I can say now is that really the only difference between that kind of hypothetical Mad Max future and what we live in now is in that future there would be many people who are committing acts of authoritarianism, while now we have just one group of people. So, I mean, basically what, what you would be looking at in that scenario is, is kind of diversifying the, the problem to some degree, which I, I see as being a move in the right direction, uh, but it, it's far from fixing the entire problem. Uh, I, I have, hold no delusion there, and, it, and it's not something that we can easily map out either because we've lived for so long under this current system that any existence outside of this system is we're not going to be able to predict how that's going to work. I think that what I know for sure is that this system does not work, and this system has done a lot of damage. And before this system, things were not perfect, but they were better. Uh, they were better when when there were when there was more of a tribal existence. The, there were wars, you know. There were people who got killed. There was oppression, but it wasn't on this massive corporate multinational scale. Uh, you know, we didn't have nuclear weapons. We didn't have, you know, drones operated by artificial intelligence. You know, it, it, we didn't have this kind of dystopian mega mega structure that we have now. Um, there were still problems because that's humanity. There, there, there are always going to be problems. And the idea that we're going to be able to solve all of the problems is, is immature. Um, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. 
doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to it, but it's a constant struggle. It's it's something that you have to work at constantly. Uh, so, I mean, in, in a sense, there is no end. You know, the revolution does not end. It's an everyday thing, and it's not a strictly political thing. It's a cultural thing. It's a it's a psychological thing. It's a spiritual thing, uh, and people have to find a way. I think to make it personal, in order for it to really work. So, so what do you think about the, the way that the, the COVID situation, you know, morphing into this current genocide of Palestine? We see this weird transformation of, like the the people who were standing up for freedom during the COVID period against this notion that you know one size fits all medical uh, tyranny, uh, technological medicine for everybody or else kind of thing. And the people who are against that tend to be sort of the, you know, the Trump demographic, the, the, you know, the more political sort of right wing or part of it anyway. And many of them are religious people. And whereas the techno dystopian crowd was mostly sort of the so-called left, the fake left or the middle of the road, um, you know, the worshipers of the state and the worshipers of technology. And my sympathies, of course, were more with the religious crowd at that point. But now yeah. we see the opposite. Ah. We see, see those same people are trying to silence those of us who are speaking out against the genocide in Palestine. And uh, and now I'm seeing people more, you know, so they're, you're not the only person who sort of, you know, maybe lumped a little bit more sort of towards the left side of the spectrum than the right, uh, who's showing a lot more common sense regarding Palestine than all of these these you know, free speech uh, people and the uh, freedom movement people during COVID. So what, it, it, I'm getting dizzy with all of these political reversals, right? The you know the liberal yeah. conservative left right thing from my youth has sort of flipped. It seems like more almost more than once. And uh, so uh, what, what's with that? What, and and I mean I, I personally think that you know ultimately what's important isn't so much these spectrums of politics and and the state and all of that, but but more, you know, to the extent that people can sense the reality of the transcendent, something bigger than themselves. You know, we call it Allah here in Morocco. Uh, and the people who, who, who don't and who lose that and then end up, you know, kind of getting, you know, sucked into the purely material needs uh, and forces kind of paradigm. Uh, but then I'm, I'm seeing that it's different, it's different groups that seem to be, you know, divinely inspired a little bit for in one moment yeah. on one issue. And then they become, you know, they, they, they fall apart on the next issue in the next moment. But it's, it's, I think it's kind of our humanity kind of fighting against all of this partisan indoctrination. And I think so that you'll see, sometimes you'll see people on the right, kind of embody common sense. And then other times you'll see people on the left, but at the same time they have this kind of partisan color blindness where they don't they only kind of see the bullshit on one side of the fence. And that's because neither side really has a a devotion towards anti-authoritarianism. They have a devotion to their side being right. So when so they can they see the authoritarianism when it's coming from one side, but they don't see it when it's coming from the other. When it's their side that wins from authoritarianism, they're fine with it. When it's somebody else's side, then they they see it for what it really is. And it's it's getting people to kind of wake up to the fact that 
liberty, freedom, whatever you want to call it, it, it has to be universal. It has to be for everybody. It has to be for the people you don't like. It has to be the freedom for people to do things that you don't like. As long as they're not harming you, then it's not really your business. And it's, it's, it's hard for people to break out of that mindset. And I think that mindset has been kind of designed to keep us divided against each other. Uh, because if you, you know, if you really look at a lot of the arguments that are being made, you know, the, the, the arguments that were made on the right as far as medical freedom were concerned are very similar to the arguments made on the left regarding things like the transgender issue, regarding people being able to make medical decisions and, and the government not getting involved. Um, but they don't. They don't seem to see it. When well, it, when I, I would question that a little bit because I think a lot of the. I actually, you know, I kind of sympathize with with the right to a certain extent in terms of the public schools, which are government funded institutions, um, imposing a kind of ideology on people's children. Well, I, I would say that that public schools are are a problem in and of themselves, and they were built to impose one kind of ideology or another, expecting. A public school not to impose some form of ideology is just is foolish because that's what they were designed to do. So it doesn't really matter if you put one person in charge. They're going this school. It's going to be used for authoritarian uses no matter what. So the the best solution to that is to to get rid of the public school system. Um, but. At the same time, I'm speaking more towards uh, private medical decisions, you know, medical decisions made by by parents regarding their children. Um, and those medical decisions could be not getting their children vaccinated or they could be uh, putting their children on, on hormone blockers. Um, and you may disagree with, with either one of those vehemently, and you may have yeah, I'm, I'm know, kind of a Luddite, I'm kind of a Luddite on these matters. Like I, I'm just horrified by most sort of non absolutely vitally necessary medical procedures. Uh, I don't believe I don't yeah. like techno medicine, and I, I agree with Dean Radin, the uh, psych, the or rather a scientist who studies psi or you know various forms of, of extrasensory abilities, who says that ultimately we won't need any uh, techno medicine at all once we're fully using the potentials. Of you know what's today called uh, psychic healing, but anyway, so so yeah, yeah. So, so so like this 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 is like I don't know though the 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 drugs. But at the same time, the the arg the arguments being made are the same. The arguments are basically you know when the arguments being made on the right right are you know back off and let us make our own decisions with our kids and the. the to a certain extent, people on the left are, try are are making the same argument in regards to you know people who have transgender kids, um, and it, you can disagree or agree with either one of those points of view. But but the ultimate point is that if you believe that people have the right to make decisions for themselves and their families, then the government should not be involved. Uh, and that that should go across the board, and that means allowing people to make decisions that you may totally, completely disagree with, that you may find to be horrifying, 
and people on the left find find the decisions, you know, of Christian scientists, for example, uh, not to treat their kids for cancer. They find that just as horrifying as conservatives find uh, the transgender issue to be. Um, and it's not really the point isn't really whether which side is right or wrong on the individual on the actual decisions it's the right for those people to make those decisions and that's what people have a hard time people get bogged down in the details of oh i agree with this i agree with that i disagree with this i disagree with that when the reality is you don't have the right to make those decisions for other people and the only way this works the only way people have the freedom to make those decisions is if we all agree that we don't have the right to make those decisions for somebody else. That's, that's, that's um, well and, put, yeah. And that's, that's why that libertarian heuristic uh, uh, is, you know, the, that basic uh, uh, heuristic of the non-aggression principle is a pretty good one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of, I've, I've kind of fallen, I've kind of, I started out as a communist myself. And, you know, and I, I, I've kind of fallen more and more in line with some of the ideas of people who describe themselves as being anarcho-capitalists. And if you would have told me when I was 20 and I was a, a Marxist that I would be... Uh, how old are you now, Murray by the way? Rothbard, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm 35. Okay. All right. So it's been, yeah, it's been a long, weird journey. Yeah, that, that's uh, actually that's actually how old I was when I came to Islam. <laughs> From yeah. having previously, uh, like I was looking at your blog and the music you listen to and stuff, and you know, I, I where I was at age thirty-five, right before I came to Islam, was actually pretty darn close to where you are in a lot of ways, culturally and in terms of musical taste and things like that, and anarchist affiliation, all of that. So it was kind of weird. It was like yeah. I was reading read your blog, and I'm like, "Wow, this is like this is sort of me from another lifetime." <laughs> oh boy! Yeah, but yeah, it's it, yeah, it, it's uh, people never stop changing. I think that 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 should be that should be part of any ideology is allowing for people the chance to evolve. And the idea, I think a big problem is people become married to these labels and these ideas, and this has to mean that, always. And I think people need to kind of allow themselves the ability to kind of evolve and change. Uh, and it's not, it's not an admission of failure, you know. I mean, I still believe the same things I believed when I was a communist. I've just come to... I've come to to the realization that that wasn't working. That didn't work. Uh, let's work, move on. Let's try something else. Um, and let's keep in mind that the last thing we tried didn't work out, so maybe this won't either. So we'll try something else after that. Um, uh, so I, I think a lot of a lot of the partisan ideology stuff that's been beaten into our brains has kind of held people back and kind of kept people from from being able to to grow yeah um, absolutely I, you know I, I was told by some sufi contacts in morocco when i lived here uh, 15 you know 20 over 20 years ago that i should go back to america become a counselor 
and uh, solve people's problems. It's so easy. The Sufi counseling would just be that, hey, you know, you've got problems. You know what your problem is? It's actually you're the problem. Your identity, your ego is the problem. So annihilate your ego. But that's easier said than done, and we're at the end of the show. So thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's been a very, very interesting conversation. Nikki Reed, keep up the great work. God bless. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Nikki Reed of the Attack the System and Exile in Happy Valley back in the next hour with Michael Hoffman and Carl Golovin. Stick around.